Welcome to Providence. We're so glad that you're with us. Uh, and my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, I get to uh, preach a message about hope. We are in the middle of a series. Actually, oh yeah, New Reality, Kid City. I thought Kid City's already out, but New Reality is also dismissed at this time. We're in week two of a series uh, that started out uh, or is sourced in a text in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Uh, and that text says, if I can get that next slide up, I'm not seeing this thing come on. The green button is on, I would assume. Let's do that. There we go. I'll just say next slide unless I can get this thing working. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We are going to be spending our time in the text uh, that Jocelyn read in Hebrews chapter 6, um, and, but before we go there, I just want to refresh your memory as to why we're choosing this series for Advent. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is listing out three core virtues. And virtue was a big deal in Roman society. We don't talk about it much. It used to be a big deal in American society as well. But we don't spend a lot of time uh, with our virtues, talking about our virtues, listing out our virtues, the things that make us good people, essentially. But in Rome, they did. And uh, Plato actually had three or four virtues, wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Plato was before Paul. He listed out his set of virtues. Roman or Aristotle had a list as well. Courage, temperance, liberality, magnificence, pride, honor, good temper, friendliness, truthfulness, wit, friendship, and justice. If you will set yourself to uh, embody these things, you will be a good person. This is what it means to be virtuous, full of virtue. Roman society had their own list, another lengthy list. Thousands of, or a thousand years, 1,500 years later or so, Benjamin Franklin would come up with his own list of 13 virtues. So why does Paul only have three? Why does he only focus on these three, faith, hope, and love. And he doesn't just do it here. And he's not the only New Testament writer that emphasizes these three virtues over the rest of them. Paul also does this twice in Thessalonians. He does it in Romans. He does it in Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. Peter picks up this theme and mentions these three virtues as well. And the writer of Hebrews mentions these three virtues. Faith, hope, and love are unique in that they all rest on the work of another. Plato and the philosophers, along with most of modern American culture, and even a lot of current Christian culture, would have you carry the weight of virtue on your own shoulders. And that's what's different with Paul's list. Why in the world, according to these other cultures, would you rely on someone else's virtue? Why would you do that? You can't do that. You're on your own, after all, aren't you? If you want something done right, you better do it yourself. Yes. Nobody's going to give you anything. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Pick yourself up by the 
bootstraps and be a good person, be virtuous. You all know this drill. You all know it. But if you're honest, you can't carry that weight. You weren't meant to. You weren't created to carry that weight. You know you can't do it. You'll never be wise enough. You'll never be just enough. You'll never have enough fortitude or self-control to appease your own condemning heart, let alone the eyes of people that are judging you. You'll never do it. I think the reason that Paul gave us these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, is that you and I weren't meant to bear this burden. I'm not saying we shouldn't be virtuous people. So if you're recording, make sure that you got that part. I'm not saying we shouldn't be virtuous. We absolutely should be. Paul wouldn't say we shouldn't be virtuous, but he prioritized these three because he knew the teachings of Jesus and he knew the teachings of the Pharisees. And before he bent down to pick up a burden of virtue and put that on his shoulders, he was going to make sure that it was the burden that Jesus talked about when he said, my yoke is easy, pick it up. My burden is light. Paul knew that Plato's list would crush him. Aristotle's list would crush him. Rome's list would crush him. The Old Testament law's version of virtue would crush him. But Jesus came to pick up our burdens and carry them. The difference between Paul and Plato was that Paul recognized his own need of a virtuous one to provide him with the virtue that he couldn't earn. So should you pursue wisdom? Of course you should. Should you pursue self-control? Of course you should. But if you start and end there, you'll kill yourself. First, embrace faith and let that faith provide hope and let that faith and hope work on your behalf so that you can experience unending, overflowing, transforming love. Because if you can become a faith-embodying, hope-filled, deeply loved child of the King, he will fill you with all wisdom and knowledge and fortitude and courage and mercy and self-control and then some. He himself has given you all things, Peter says, that pertain to life and godliness. So if you're finding yourself crushed by a guilty conscience this morning, because you haven't been as virtuous over this past week as you want to be, or this past quarter, or this past decade. Get that burden off your shoulders and hand it to Jesus. Start here. Start here. Start with these three, faith, hope, and love. And as you walk alongside Jesus and worship Jesus, you will find his spirit adding to your life love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You might call those the virtues of the Spirit. All three of these virtues depend on God himself and are freely given gifts, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Last week, we were honored to have Emmanuel come and speak to us. Emmanuel and Gulu, not the Emmanuel. Come and speak to us. That'd be awesome. On faith. And he helped us understand what faith is and what it isn't. It's not just thinking the right thoughts about God. It's actually an embodied fidelity to the kingdom values. Remember that? It was awesome. It was a fantastic sermon. And if you haven't heard it, it's online and you should absolutely listen to it. This week we're going to talk about hope. And next week we will talk about love as we close out this series. So let's spend the rest of our time together looking at 
hope. Before we do that, I just want to pause and just take a moment and invite you to look at your own heart. This is something that uh, the psalmist David was really good at doing. Search my heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Because we're going to talk about hope and we're going to talk about what it is. And I'm not going to have a lot of time to spend on telling you not to put your hope in the wrong things. I'm going to spend all of my time talking about why you should put your hope in the best thing and the best person. And hopefully you'll see that be drawn to him and the spirit himself will work in your heart and say, okay, you're hoping in some lesser things here. Let's address this. So I trust the spirit to do that work. And I want to invite him in this morning to begin that work now. So if you could just take a moment, I want you to examine your heart and ask yourself, what are the things that I tend to put my hope, my confidence, my emotional stability in? Where do I find my emotional stability? I'm just going to assume you're like me. I'm going to assume that your heart is as prone to wander as mine is and is as prone to get tangled up in the wrong things, insufficient hopes. And so I'll give you an example of how this works in my own life. I have a job. I work in real estate. And we are facing this looming specter of a recession. Interest rates are skyrocketing. The market has slowed down. 15 years ago when I started the business that I now have, I went through years of anxiety because I was so worried about getting a paycheck. And now I can feel that familiar taste because I, I'm nervous. And so every time an article comes out that says, you don't need to be nervous, I'm so encouraged. I'm actually encouraged too much by these articles. It's actually a sign. If, if I'm going through my day and I'm nervous and I read an article and I'm like, okay, I don't have anything to be worried about, that's a red flag. In my car, there'd be a little light that comes on in your dashboard that just says hope. That's all I would say. Where is your hope, Josh? Why is this article so relieving to you? Is your hope wrapped up in material things? Is it wrapped up in wealth or in your bank account? Or is your hope greater than that? It's an opportunity. So it's not just when I feel anxiety. That, that's also when that little warning light comes on. That light just stays on in my car, just for the record. Hope stays on. I tend to be an anxious person. But it's not just the negative things that come up, anxiety, depression, that are also a good test for where your hope is lying. But it's also, what do you find so encouraging that you can sleep at night? If it's something less than what we're going to talk about today, I think the Spirit of God wants to identify that in your heart and warn you that that's not sufficient for you. If you put your hope in whatever that thing is, you will be devastated, given enough time. So I don't know what that is for you. I don't know if maybe it's your job. We're seeing a lot of layoffs right now. I don't know if it's your job. I don't know if it's your 401k. I don't know if it's a particular relationship that if that thing tanks, life is not worth living. Maybe it's your children and you're just hoping that they're going to make good decisions. And when they don't, you're shaken to the core. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your health and you've received a diagnosis that has you shaken. 
And life is just not worth living if this is going to happen. What is it? What is it that if you don't have it or you don't get it or you can't keep it, life would no longer be worth living? I want you to ask that question now. And I'm going to pray that the Spirit would give us insight into our own hearts and that like the good surgeon that he is, he would come into our hearts and address these things for us and that we would just have the humility to respond according to the gospel, which is just repentance and faith. You identify it, I will repent of it, and I will turn and follow you alone. That's all that is. So I'm going to pray. Father, you're so good to us, and you're so patient with us. You say in your word that if you were like us, you would fly off the handle and be angry, but you're not like us. You're slow to anger and quick to forgive. These are the things that make you God. So I pray that you would gently, compassionately, empathetically, like our faithful high priest, send your spirit this morning to examine our hearts and see if there be any wicked ways in us any strands of other things that are wrapping themselves up and tangling themselves around our hearts and luring us away from putting our hope in you alone. And as you identify those things, I pray you'd reveal them to us and give us the grace to repent of them and to be free of them because they're burdens. They're not saviors, they're burdens. It's slavery and you've set us free from slavery. So I pray you'd help us to be free and to walk in freedom this morning. Show us the hope that we have in you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I have good news for you this morning. When emotions are high, when fears overwhelm facts, when things are at a tipping point, when we need dialogue over drama, don't we need that? We need dialogue over drama today. We have an anchor. An anchor that calms. An anchor that steadies. I'm going to actually play this now in a video, what I just said, so that you can see that we have an anchor when we need one most. Amen. You guys all amend it, not me. You amend it first. I just read it. I just read you the news, and you amend it. I'm just kidding. I led you into that. That calm your heart is Lester. Lester, when you find yourself awake at 3 in the morning, are you like, I need Lester? 
Lester. Lester Holt. I need more news. That's what I need. When I'm feeling anxious and depressed, I just need somebody, somebody with the courage to get on TV and read the news to me. That's what I need. That's the anchor. That's the anchor that America needs. What is that ad selling? They're selling hope. That's what they're selling. And they're trying to convince you and me that your hope lies in somebody with a compelling voice, a calming, an anchor that calms, that can just read the news to you. And that's, that's going to be hopeful. That's the opposite of hope. I have never in my life found the news to be hopeful. I never have. It's not hopeful. If you, I don't care who reads it to me. I don't care if I read it myself. It's not hopeful. We are, as humanity, we, the thing that we have in common or a thing that we have in common is we are desperate for hope. We're so desperate for hope, we will find it in anything, anything, and we'll look everywhere for it. We'll find it in all of the things that I said at the beginning of the sermon. You know where you find hope. We're desperate for this, and we're so desperate that we're easy prey for somebody that comes along with a compelling message that says, you can trust me. And that's exactly what our enemy does. As he is roaming around like a roaring lion, Peter says, looking for those that he can devour. You know how he's going to do that? How he's going to devour you? Just by getting you to shift your hope off of God and onto something lesser. He's done that since the Garden of Eden. And he's going to do it throughout the rest of his existence. He's going to convince us, trick us into believing that our hope can be found elsewhere and it can't be found elsewhere. What is hope? What is hope? It's not the way that we tend to use it in our English language. The biblical idea of hope is not the way we tend to use it. What we tend to mean by hope is a really strong wish or good thoughts, like um, you're having a birthday. I hope you have many more. That's hope. Uh, you get sick, and on Facebook, people send out thoughts and prayers, and they hope for a speedy recovery. That's often what we mean by hope. My kids are familiar with hope this time of year because they're really counting on some things under the tree. And so they hope that they get them, and they might, they might not. We're still watching. <laughs> when things come up in life, you hope that they will change, right? The negative things. When bad circumstances arrive, you hope that those things will change. But you don't know if they will. You hope that they, I hope that my truck does not end up with a flat tire this week, like Hunter's car did last week. I hope that that doesn't happen to me. But it might. It might. I have no guarantee that it won't. In fact, in Denver, with construction going on every street, it probably will happen, right? That's what we mean by hope. It's a really positive thought or an intention, a desire that we have. That's usually, most of the time, what we mean when we say hope. However, usually, most of the time, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something completely different, just like last week when we saw that faith, when the Bible talks about faith, it's not just talking about thinking good thoughts about God. It's actually more substantive than that. It's embodied fidelity to kingdom values. Remember that? 
Hope is something much more than just, I hope this happens. I have this good thought, this good intention that this happens. I hope the universe just brings this to pass for me. It's more than that. Biblical hope is much more than that. It is a sure and steady confidence based on evidence. It is as sure as any contract you've ever signed and more sure than any contract you've ever signed. Hope is not, I wish this would happen. It's not wishing on a star. Hope is knowing based on past realities, present realities, future realities, that something good is going to happen. That's what the Bible holds up as hope and calls you to do. Hope is actually something that you're called to do, to have. I will have my hope here. I will let my, my hope rest here. You all do this. You all use hope as a verb in your lives every day of your life. You hope in something. We just tend to hope in the wrong things because the things that we tend to hope in are more like wishing upon a star. If I'm hoping for a job promotion, but I have no means of guaranteeing that I'm going to get it and nothing to do to affect that outcome. It's just a wish that I have. That's all I have. And if you're putting your hope, your steadfast emotional security on that, and it doesn't happen, what happens to you? What happens to you? You've been there. I know I'm not the only one that's been there. You've been there. Say what? You crumble. Yes. Yes, you crumble into emotional despair. So what I'm going to just set before you today is someone that you can actually hope in. It's not Lester. It's a spoiler. <laughs> Somebody that you can actually hope in and put all of your emotional security on this person so that no matter what circumstances arise, you remain unshaken. And you aren't going to walk out of here and just do this perfectly. This is a lifelong discipleship to Jesus, where over the course of your life, you find that he has never lied, he has never broken a promise, and you trust him more and more and more. As other things around you crumble and let you down, he doesn't. Okay, so let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm just going to look at three things. We're going to look at a contract, we're going to look at an anchor, and we're going to look at our forerunner. First of all, the contract. The word contract doesn't show up in this text. I'm aware of that. But let's look at this text. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, the writer of Hebrews here, sorry to interrupt you, the writer of Hebrews is writing this little paragraph to give us hope and to instruct us on where our hope can rest. So he's getting ready to make his case. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Surely. So that word surely is a certainty. This is certain. I am certainly going to bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. We see this in everyday life, right? I mean, people will, even non-Christians will say, I swear to God that this is true. We see this. They swear by something greater than themselves. Or I swear on my mother's grave. We hear that one too. Or I swear on the life of my children, which maybe we hear it. <laughs> These things, I've, I've never sworn on the lives of my kids. Uh, 
you're often swearing on something that matters more to you than life itself in order to show that you're going to keep this promise that you're about to make, right? That's not foreign to us, even though this was written thousands of years ago. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So he swore by himself, actually I'll just keep reading, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to hope. God had no one greater by whom he could swear than himself. So he swore to Abraham by himself. I swear by myself. I have never broken a promise. This is a promise. I swear to you, I will deliver on this promise that I'm giving you. And as if that wasn't enough, which it is plenty, he went further and confirmed it with an oath. Oath is often referred to in the Old Testament as a covenant we would think of this, what this text is referring back to, and you can turn there, it's in Genesis 15. It's referring us to a story where God essentially signed a contract with Abraham. Doesn't look like that to us. But to people in that day, it was totally a contract. In Genesis 15, if you'll turn there, this is the only other place that we'll flip over to. I'm just going to summarize the story, but you can, you can look at it if you want to. God is coming to Abraham. He has already promised Abraham that he is going to bless him and multiply his offspring and that the, his descendants will outnumber the sands on the seashore. They'll outnumber the stars in the sky. There's one problem. You know what it is? Remember? What's the one problem? He has no children. God has promised and he's getting old. He's getting really old, like older than 43. He's approaching 100 years old and God is promising to give him more offspring than he can count. And so in Hebrews, it says that Abraham patiently waited. In Genesis 15, he looks a lot more human. In Genesis 15, twice he asks God, yeah, but how am I going to know you're going to do this? That's somebody we can relate to, right? I mean, he's in the hall of faith later in Hebrews as somebody who exemplifies what it is to be faith-filled. And in Genesis 15, he's wavering. He has God make this promise. He's reiterating a promise that God has already made to him. And Abraham wavers. Yes, God, but how will I know that this is going to come to pass? So God promises again. He swears by himself. You're going to know this is going to come to pass because I'm telling you it's going to come to pass. That's how you're going to know. And that should have been enough. God is swearing by himself that it's going to happen. That should have been enough. It wasn't enough. God went forward with a contract. Toward the end of Genesis 15, you have this weird picture where God tells Abraham to go gather some animals and cut them in half, and we're going to walk through these animals together. We're going to walk through the middle of the pieces. What in the world is happening there? That sounds strange to us, but all that is, is it's not any more strange than signing your name on a piece of paper as proof of your promise. In fact, this is more sufficient proof, okay? This is, we're walking through, you, you bring animals. If you and I were going to make a contract together, we'd gather some animals, we'd cut them in half. You and I together would walk through the pieces, and as we're walking through these carcasses, and we see the blood on the ground, we see these pieces of dead bodies, it's saying something to us about the seriousness of this contract that we're making together. What it's saying is, 
if I fail to live up to my end of the deal, may I be ripped to pieces. And if you fail to live up to your end of the deal, may you be ripped to pieces. It's a contract. That's the promise. That's what God is having Abraham do. So if, you are, if you're familiar with that and you start reading the story, you're expecting when you know what's happening when God says, go gather some animals and cut them in half. You're expecting God and Abraham to walk through the pieces together, but that's not what happens. What happens is God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and then God himself alone walks through the pieces. What does that signify? Well, that is what we would call a unilateral contract. God is walking through the pieces and saying, if I fail to keep my word to you, Abraham, may I be ripped to pieces. And if you fail to live up to your end of the bargain, Abraham, may I be ripped to pieces. Guys, this is a blood oath and it's unilateral. It doesn't depend on Abraham's lack of wavering because we know the story. He's going to waver. He's going to sin. He's not going to be full of faith 24-7 for the rest of his life. He's going to be human for the rest of his life. And God said, it doesn't matter. I am going to keep this promise because I've sworn by myself. It's been signed in blood. If I fail, may I be ripped apart. And if you fail, may I be ripped apart. There is no surer contract than that. You don't have one. Your marriage license is not surer than that contract. The mortgage, if you own a house that you've signed, the lease, if you don't own a house that you've signed, it's a sure contract. There are ramifications if you violate those terms, but it is not surer than this contract that God made with us. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to the contract. He's not saying you should hope in God because when you wish upon a star, good things happen. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you can hope in God because you've got the paperwork. He's signed it. You have the contract. It's done. It's done. That's the first thing that we look at is the contract, the covenant. Our hope is anchored in a blood-sworn oath from God himself to God himself. Secondly, the anchor. The writer says... We have this. Actually, I'm going to read this a little bit before this in, in 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, it's impossible for him to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. This is a certain thing that you are invited to grab onto and rest your life upon set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The picture there is the Holy of Holies, which we were prevented from going into before Jesus. This is where God himself sits on his throne in complete royal splendor. And if you or I were to walk into that before Jesus, we would be immediately consumed and killed. It's the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place within the temple. And if you remember the story of Jesus' crucifixion, there was a veil that separated humanity from entering into this place, except for a specific few. It separated people like me and you from entering into this place. When Jesus was crucified, that veil was ripped in half, signifying we now have access to God as our Father, and we can walk into the throne room, Hebrews says, with boldness. When we need anything, 
Because God is now our father. He's now a father. He's not a judge. He's a father. And so we can walk in. And so he's saying what Jesus did in that moment is he secured an anchor in the throne room for our hope. That's a really strange picture. Isn't it? I mean, picture just this throne room. Imagine that we're in the most amazing, ornate throne room you've ever seen. Gold floors, this amazing throne, and God himself sitting on this throne. I mean, this is the vision that prophets would receive and fall down as though they were dead just by seeing a vision, not even actually being there. That's how great and magnificent this is. And right in the middle of this throne room, is a giant anchor burying itself into the floor, ruining the floorboards, just ruining it. A cruise ship anchor is generally about 10 to 20 feet tall, and they weigh about 10 to 20 tons. 10 to 20 tons to hold a cruise ship. So just imagine it's an anchor like that. It's this massive 10-foot-tall 10 to 20 ton anchor. I mean, a Volkswagen sedan is what? Two tons? Ton and a half to two tons, right? So yeah, 10 Volkswagens in weight, just stacked. You've got this anchor ripped, just breaking the floor and just sitting there. And this long chain that goes out of the back of the room and off into the distance. That's the picture. This massive anchor. And on the anchor, it says, my children's hope. So that always in the throne room, the Father knows and is looking at this promise that he's made. Jesus carried this anchor in and set it in the throne room and said, my brothers and sisters will never have to worry about anything else for as long as they live. That's the picture. And this chain that goes out reaches you, reaches all the way to you and connects to this harness of faith that you have. It sounds like I'm stretching the metaphor, I'm not stretching the metaphor. He used an anchor on purpose. Paul was familiar with anchors. This thing has you. And you can be driven and tossed like a wave of the sea, but you're secure and you're going to be safe. Circumstances can rise up. It can look like the ocean around you is going to drown you, but it's not. You will pass through the waters and you will not drown. I will be with you. You will pass through the fires and you will not be burned. You have an anchor in heaven. This is the idea of safety and security of this contract. This is like taking a contract that you've signed and putting it in a safe. Imagine uh, a 15-year-old living in the projects with his grandmother, gets a knock on the door and it's an attorney. He says, I need you to come with me. We've got to go sign some paperwork. So he does. He gets in this limousine. He goes to downtown Denver, sits in this law office, and he's presented with some paperwork where he finds out that a member of his family has passed away who he didn't even know existed and has left him an estate worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He's living in the projects. He is uh, bullied at school. He's got a rough home life. Things are difficult. He doesn't know when his next meal is going to arrive. But he's sitting in this law office, and he sees a contract here, a document that says, in three years, when he turns 18, he's going to inherit an estate worth hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't get it till you're 18. 
You got to go back home. You got to live out the next three years of your life. But I just want you to sign it. I want you to see that it's signed. And we're going to put it here in a safe. And when you turn 18, this money is immediately yours. How does that kid go back and face the rest of his life? How does he go back and face the rest of his life? So he doesn't get the shoes that he wanted to get for Christmas. Doesn't get the shoes that he wants. How does he face that? How does he deal with that? He's, he's probably going to be all right. He's probably going to be all right. There's a girl that he likes. And she says, you just, uh, you don't dress the right way for me. I don't, I don't date that. How's he going to respond to that? Yeah, wait. <laughs> just you wait. Or he's going to say, that's all right, I don't date that. <laughs> right? I'm a millionaire, babe. He goes and applies at Chick-fil-A and doesn't get the job. How does he respond to that? He needs money. How does he respond to that? He's <laughs> My pleasure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Why? Why can he respond to the rest of his life that way? Why? He's got the hope. He saw the forms. It's in a safe. It's secure. It's not going anywhere. And that contract would not be as sure as the contract that God himself has signed with you. And it's not as safe as that contract is. This is hope. This is hope. Lastly, we'll look at our forerunner and then we'll close. Verse 20 brings this anchor in buries it into the floor of the throne room, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's an awesome thing that we don't have time to get into. But we do have time to get into the forerunner. What does it mean for him to be our forerunner? And in what way was he our forerunner? In a few ways, he was our forerunner. But in the primary way here that he was our forerunner was he was the first of us to go through death and come out the other side. That's how Jesus is our forerunner. So he's the first to go into the holy of holies and stand as a human being and not be consumed. To enter into the throne room and not be utterly destroyed because he stands there in utter and perfect righteousness because he was obedient. He came and lived the life that we wish we could live. Perfect obedience, perfect virtue. And then that was his side of the contract. He honored that. But then he had to make up for our side of the contract, where we weren't virtuous, we were not obedient. Even today, we're going to walk out of here and not be perfectly obedient. But it's okay because our forerunner went before us and honored the contract, where we fell short and we fell short. We became the enemies of God. And while we were his enemies, he died for us. He honored the contract and was ripped to pieces on our behalf. But he didn't stay there. He didn't stay dead. He came out the other side of death as the firstborn from the dead, showing us that now we have a way through even death itself. And there's nothing more terrifying than death. Hebrews says, that our enemy has wielded the fear of death as a weapon. And what Jesus did by being our forerunner in that way is he disarmed the enemy because we're not afraid of death anymore. 
There is nothing that can cause us to be shaken from our hope, not even death itself. That's what our forerunner did for us. So we aren't like the kid hoping to come into an inheritance one day. The inheritance is already ours. It's ours. It's a confident hope. In uh, real estate, there is a box that you can check on a real estate contract. We can go to the next. There we go. It's a box that you can check called specific performance. And in my 15 years of doing real estate, I've never seen this box checked. It's on the contract. If I were to make an offer to buy your house, we would sign a contract together. And in that contract is a box called specific performance. Liquidated damages is the way that the contract works. And what liquidated damages means is I put up earnest money. So if I'm going to buy your house, offer to buy your house from you, I'll write you a check for $5,000 that you can hold as my vested interest in this contract. And if I don't keep up my end, you can keep the money. That's what earnest money is for. So that's liquidated damages. The reason nobody checks specific performance is because it goes further than liquidated damages. If I checked specific performance and gave you an earnest money check for $5,000 and failed to live up to my end of the contract, you could force me in court to buy your house. And I would be faced with a debt that I could not pay, potentially. It's like, what if I lost my job? It's, there's a reason the box is never checked. I could be in a situation where I couldn't do it. I couldn't follow through. But you could have the weight of the court system on your side forcing me to follow through. That's specific performance. Specific performance is what Jesus did in this contract. It would be easy for us to be skeptical when God signs this unilateral contract and says, if you don't keep up your end, may I be ripped to pieces. We know people, and so we could sit back and say, yeah, right. But there are loopholes, right? Every contract has them. If you hire the right attorney, you can find them. There are loopholes in every contract. So God, I'll sit back and just wait for you to find the loophole because I know I'm not going to live up to your expectations and you're not going to be ripped to pieces. But this box was checked. So when it came time to pay out on this promise that he made to Abraham and to all of the successive generations and to you and to me, when it came time to deliver, God didn't use any loopholes. There weren't any. Jesus actually performed the terms of the contract on our behalf as our forerunner and went to the cross on our behalf. The contract is fulfilled. The covenant is fulfilled. You have entered into now this new relationship with God that is eternally secure. There is nothing in your life that measures up to this. There's nothing. There's nothing that can give you this kind of hope. Nothing. So as we close, I just want you to remember the question that you started out with. I've asked the uh, sound booth to play just a song as we're wrapping up and closing. But I want you to just ask yourselves that question again. And as you leave from here, what am I hoping in? What is it that if I didn't get it or didn't have it or couldn't keep it, life would no longer be worth living? Where is my hope? This is the time of year when we hear a lot about baby Jesus. People put up nativity scenes. Artists release Christmas albums with Hark the Herald Angels sing next to Jingle Bell Rock. It's sentimental. It's nostalgic. It's quaint. 
It's sweet. A baby in a manger. And that's where the rulers and authorities of this world would love to keep him. As long as we talk about him as a baby, it's safe. Nobody's threatened by a baby. The swaddling clothes keep him contained. But if they only knew, if they only knew that this baby didn't come and put on flesh in order to stay a baby, he came to get up out of the major and out of the swaddling clothes and to spend his life for the sake of others, healing, feeding, teaching, loving, shepherding the lost sheep and bringing them back to green pastures. And ultimately, he even shed his own blood as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And with his blood, he ransomed all of mankind. Babies don't do that. Champions do that. And though our champion started out as a baby, just like everybody else, Jesus did what nobody else could do. He defeated sin, death, and hell for your sake and secured your hope with an anchor in the very throne room of God himself, giving us access now, this morning, not back to a manger, but to a throne room and to a king who has the power and the blood-sworn obligation to save his people forever. And he will fulfill that obligation. So when we say Merry Christmas, we don't primarily look back to a manger. We look ahead to a throne room. Our king isn't in a manger anymore. He's on the throne. And there, at this moment, right now, there is your anchor, Providence. That's your anchor. That's your hope. Jesus himself seated on a throne as the rightful king of the universe. And right now he has your name on his lips. Now, as he makes intercession for you with his father, your name is engraved in the scars on his hands and your entire future is being held and guarded and secured by his mighty grasp. He has given everything, even his own life, to give you not just a wish, but a confident, unshakable hope, secure and solid and steadfast as a mountain. And he's not going anywhere. What can anyone do or say to rob us of this hope? They want you to wring your hands about a recession or a war or politics or cancer. Your heart wants you to wring your hands about your lack of virtue or your lack of obedience. But you have the infinite riches of the kindness of God being stored up for you. Fix your eyes and your hearts on your anchor providence and go out from here with your hope firm and unshaken by feeble and fleeting circumstance. As you go, your friends and coworkers will begin to see it in you and they will ask you why you're so full of hope and you will tell them that just when you need it at most, you found an anchor. Let's pray. Father, I pray your spirit would come. I pray he'd speak to hearts. 
I pray he would bind up the brokenhearted this morning. I pray he would encourage the despairing. I pray he would calm the anxious. And I pray he would remind us that we have a father in heaven who has sworn himself to do good to us for the rest of our lives. Father, I pray you would let this hope sink down deep and affect the way we live and the way we feel throughout the rest of this week. We ask it in Jesus' name, our forerunner. Amen.